0: From week to week, month to month, I'm basically the same old person, and I'm not growing in Christ, and God's not using me in a greater way, and I'm not even investing in eternal things because we're asleep. And so he is saying, don't just get up, go to work.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogie, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church, of Beaufort, South Carolina. Dr. Brogy is using the halfway point in our study of the Revelation to get us to consider some important questions regarding whether we're making the best use of our time to share the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, with those around us. As we continue our message entitled, What Time Is It?, Dr. Brogy gives insight into the event known as the rapture.
0: And so Paul said this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, He said, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That, by the way, if you're new to the Bible, is the next great event on God's prophetic calendar. It's called the rapture. It's called the harpazo. Every once in a while, you'll meet someone and say, well, the, the word rapture is not found in the Bible. Well, it's not found in our English Bible. There's a lot of words that aren't found even in our English Bible that we embrace as true because they represent theological expressions of what God has revealed, like the word Trinity, not found in the Bible, but that there is one God who lives in three co-eternal persons. I was witnessing to a Jewish man just a couple of days ago And he said to me, well, do you know in the opening verse of the Bible that the word God is in the plural? And his thesis was, is that there was not one God, but many gods. And of course, I quoted to him, in the beginning created God, and it is plural. In the beginning, singular verb, plural noun. And I said, no, the Bible does not teach that there's a multiplicity of gods. I said, think about it. You grew up going to a synagogue. Yes, but I'm non-religious today. What did you say every Saturday? The Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. There is one God who exists in three persons, and even in kernel form in the opening chapter of the Bible, in the beginning, God, plural, created, singular verb, the heavens and the earth. Let us make man in our image, and God begins to unfold that revelation. So the doctrine of the Trinity, the word Trinity is not a Bible word, it's a Bible thought. And the word rapture is actually a Bible word from the Latin translation which was used more than any other translation in the history of the church. If you want to know what is the most widely used translation in all of church history, it's Latin. It was the exclusive translation of Christians around the world for 1,000 years. And that's why we get this word "rapto" that comes into English as rapture. Now, I don't care what you call it. You can call it the hapazo, you can call it the catching up, you can call it the rapture, but the next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the catching up of the church. And it's important that you distinguish in your theology the difference between the second coming and the rapture because they are two different events. As this uh, next chart shows us, the rapture is the event where Christ comes for his church. We are caught up uh, in the dead in Christ rise f- first, and those of us who are alive at that event will meet the Lord in the air. Uh, we meet the Lord in the air at the rapture. He takes us to heaven, and this uh, event is called the Day of Christ in the Bible. We're at the second coming, we come back with Him. We get glorified bodies, we go to heaven, we are uh, evaluated for our service in Christ. It's called the Bema seat of Christ. And then we come back with the Lord Jesus to the earth. That event is known as the day of the Lord. It begins a very important time. That has yet to take place, of course, but it's a distinct event. So you read passages like, uh, we'll meet the Lord in the air, but then you read another passage like this in Zechariah 14. He's speaking of the return of the Messiah, and he says, in that day, his feet, Messiah's feet, We'll stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem. If you've been to Jerusalem and you stand on the Mount of Olives, you look right across at the old city of Jerusalem. You see the Temple Mount where the Temple once stood, and you see that ancient city. It's a city really within a city. It's only two and a half miles around in circumference, the old city. But nonetheless, Jesus is going to come back in the very mountain that he ascended up into heaven from, He is going to literally come back and he's going to split that mountain into and create a large valley. The Bible says there will be living water that will flow all the way to the Dead Sea. Have you ever been to the Dead Sea or read about it? You know it is the saltiest place on earth. Not only is it the lowest place on earth, it is the saltiest place on earth. Absolutely nothing, not even the smallest microorganism, can live in the Dead Sea. The Bible says a day is coming when they're going to fish in the Dead Sea, and they're going to dry their nets next to it. That has never happened. It is going to happen when the Messiah returns. Two distinct events. Nothing as I've told you, prophetically has ever needed to happen for the rapture to take place. It's an imminent event. Whereas all kinds of things need to happen for the second coming to take place. So we studied, if you were here last time in Revelation 13, of a one world government, of a one world mark, of a one world leader, of a one world false prophet that will rule the world. But nothing has ever needed to take place since Pentecost for Jesus to come and catch up his church. And that's why the New Testament writers speak of the imminent return of Christ. For instance, in Philippians 4, the apostle Paul wrote, the Lord is near. Listen to what James wrote in the fifth chapter. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. First Peter four seven, the apostle Peter said, the end of all things is near. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. First John two, the same apostle that wrote the revelation said, children, it is the last hour. And in the closing verses of the revelation, he says, quoting Jesus, yes, I am coming quickly and believing that it could happen even in his day. John will pray, amen. Come, even so come. Lord Jesus. His coming could happen at any moment. But listen, what is so breathtaking is that God is setting the stage for the second coming. I've told you many times when you go into Walmart around Halloween in October and you see the Christmas decorations go up, you know that Thanksgiving is near. Why? Because Thanksgiving happens before Christmas. And when you see the signs for the second coming take place, you know that the rapture that must precede the second coming must be all that much closer. If you were with us two Wednesday nights ago, we did a devotion around the new covenant. That's what we celebrate. This is the blood of the new covenant. Where does that idea come from? Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and in those passages he speaks of Israel in the future, becoming recipients of a new covenant. Because of their unbelief, God is now working in a Gentile church. He's saving Gentiles, not exclusively. There's a partial hardening on the Jews, but for the most part, believers in Christ today are Gentiles. But a future day is coming where all Israel is going to be saved. But for that to happen, God first predicted he would have to regather them back into the land. Listen to what God said to the prophet Ezekiel. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own lands. Ezekiel writes about that. Isaiah writes about it. Jeremiah writes about it. Moses writes about it in Deuteronomy 30, that at the end of time, the end of time, not the last days, the end of time in the latter days... God would gather his people from the nations of the world and bring them back into the land of Israel. It's absolutely amazing that God is doing it. Who would have ever thought a 100 years ago that they would live to see that event literally fulfilled in their day? We are seeing it with our own eyes. We're in one day, God said they'd become a nation again in one day, and they did on May the 14th. 1948, only 600,000 Jews in Israel at the time. Now 6.5 million Jews who have been gathered across the world. Who would have ever imagined that we would be living in what Jesus called the days of Noah, days of moral permissiveness, and the days of Lot, days of moral perversion, homosexuality. Friends, it is everywhere. And if you don't have eyes to see it, then you are blind and you don't understand how late it is on God's clock. Now, God's ways are not our ways. And certainly one day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. But listen, God said in his word that when you see these things take place, look up because your redemption is drawing near. We are living in a day when the rapture could break out at any moment, and so Jesus compares his return to heaven with a woman who's in labor. You know, when a woman's pregnant, she has all the signs, doesn't she? And there comes a point where she thinks when she goes to bed, maybe it could be tomorrow, maybe it could be tonight, and this new baby will come into the world, and my little baby will be able to say, this is my birthday. Well, listen, the signs of pregnancy are everywhere. And when the rapture of the church takes place, then the world will go into labor, the birth pangs that we've been studying in the revelation. And things like we've not even seen yet will go in a full blown way. One day, someday will be the last day. And so Paul is saying here in verse 11, look at the time. Surely already your salvation is closer today than when you first believed. So don't waste your life as he's going to admonish us don't spend it in foolish temporal things wake up capture the spiritual opportunity and invest in it because it is time to wake up secondly not only is it time to wake up it is time to get up it is time to get up you see it's one thing to be awake with your eyes open in the bed it's quite another thing to get up and get up out of that bed look at verse 12 the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. In other words, get up and go to work. It's one thing trying to wake up. It's quite another thing to get up and to go to work. And by the way, this is a common problem today amongst Christians. We come to church. We attend the adult Bible fellowship. Maybe we uh, serve in some capacity. We, we, We worship corporately, and those are good things to do. But then when it's all over, you just yawn and you go right back to sleep. And nothing's really changed. And from week to week, month to month, I'm basically the same old person and I'm not growing in Christ and God's not using me in a greater way. And I'm not even investing in eternal things because we're asleep. And so he is saying, don't just get up, go to work. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of life. He's saying, take off your pajamas. Put on the armor of light. Get dressed, get ready. You know, when I went to my closet this morning, I I picked what I was going to wear. Now, what I wore today was different from what I wore last night when I got home and it was almost dark and the lawn hadn't been cut in about 10 days and I got out there and started cutting it but I didn't cut the lawn in my suit and you shouldn't come to church in your pajamas. You need to wake up, you need to get ready, you need to go to work, you need to put on the armor of light. Let's take our way through that. He is describing just by virtue of the word armor that we are in a war. In describing our war, he said this to the Ephesians, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes, methodia, we got our word methodology from it, the methodology of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now, we don't realize that. We think my, my enemy is my wife. My enemy is my husband. My enemy is my boss. No, they're not your enemy. It's not flesh and blood. The real enemy are those forces that are working behind the humans. It's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness. And the heavenly places. This is referring to the dark, evil, fallen kingdom of Satan who moves in the world of unbelievers to shape a world system that he is pleased with. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 19th century said this to his congregation in London. He said, you may sleep, but you cannot induce the devil to close his eyes. You may see evangelicals asleep, but you will not find falsehoods slumbering. The prince of the power of the air keeps his servants well up to their work. If we could get but a glance and see the activities of Satan's servants, we would be astonished by our own sluggishness. And so Paul is saying here, listen, listen. Put on the armor of light. Listen again what he said to the Ephesians in the fifth chapter. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, with unbelievers. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness in righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, we can do that in different dimensions and in different progressions, but I want to tell you it is a sign of your conversion. Do you really know Jesus? Have you genuinely had a birth from above, or are you a cardboard Christian? Are you just a tear and not a genuine blade of wheat? Well, one way you can know is that someone who has met the Lord is trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. God wants us to do that. He wants us to be little light bulbs moving through this dark world. Is it any wonder, though, that he says this to the believer? You say, wait a minute. Why, why would he tell the believer to do this? Because the believer can be swept up through the, uh, through the war of the enemy against his life. In Romans 13, 13, let us behave properly as in the day, Listen, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sexuality, not in strife and jealousy. When you read a list like this, you say, why would Paul say this to the brethren? Why would he say this to Christians? Because there's not a person in this room, including myself, who could not fall into any of these things. And Paul is humble enough, even the great apostle, and I don't know of a greater Christian who's ever walked the earth than the apostle Paul, but he includes himself in the first person plural pronoun. In verse 12, let us, not let you, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. Then here in verse 13, let us behave properly in the day. And the Christian who knows his Bible knows that if he ever reaches the point where they think, I am so strong in that area, it will never happen to me, then they have ignored the admonition of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand, be careful, take heed that he does not fall. When you think that you are so strong that it could never happen to you, then you're tempting the devil to tempt you. Because the next verse says, and no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And so what God wants us to do is he wants us to take the truth of the word and let it shine deep in our souls so that we can see really what we are by nature, but also what we can be by faith as we depend upon the spirit to be a changed person. So I'm not surprised what Paul says to the church at Colossae. Listen to these words from Colossians 3. But now you also put them all aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self and his evil practices. And the tense of the verb in the original is such as keep on doing this over and over and over again. Keep on dying to self. This is what the writer of the Hebrews said to believers. Let us lay aside every encumbrance, the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Peter said it in these words, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And neither am I surprised when James says this in his opening chapter, he says, we're to put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. And in humility, we are to receive the word implanted, which is able to save present tense sanctification that is able to shape, save your soul. And so that's what Paul is speaking about here in Romans 13, verse 13. Now look at the verse again. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. There's three sets of two as expressed in the English text and is set in concrete in the Greek New Testament. Six sins, but they come in three different pairs. The first sin that he mentions is carousing. It's the Greek word "kamos," and it's used to describe wasteful and wicked behavior. In fact, some Bibles are a little more bold to pick out the fine nuance, and so the English Standard Version just, version just translates it orgies. And that's really the thought behind it. Now understand, the people in the first century would have immediately related because one of the principal gods that was worshipped in the Roman Empire, especially in the city of Rome, as we have uncovered, we archaeologists have uncovered through a number of various digs, was the god Bacchus. The god Bacchus was the god of wine, and just like we have an annual celebration of an event like Thanksgiving or Christmas, they had an annual celebration with the god Bacchus, and accompanied in that celebration were mass orgies across the city, and so when Paul writes to this first century church in Rome, many of its members would know that they were saved from these wicked behaviors. And many today can relate. They can relate to that time in Las Vegas, to that time in Daytona Beach, to that time in the college dorm where they lived in wickedness. The second sin with carousing goes with it and he mentions drunkenness. Not in carousing and drunkenness. Now, the two go together. Do you remember what the prophet Habakkuk said? Right out on the margin next to those two sins, Habakkuk 2.15. Again, he bleeds them together. He said, woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. So this verse speaks about making your neighbor drunk. Why? So you can look on their nakedness. And God knows that when people start drinking, they begin to lower their standards. One of the most comprehensive studies ever done on the use of alcohol on the college campus was done about five years ago by Harvard. And those researchers found that 80% now of college students drink. And in the study, they found that 54% reported regular hangovers. 44% of the students reported blackouts. 39% of the students said on occasion they did not know how they got home. 34% reported throwing up. 22% found out later that they had sexual intimacy. Not 22% had sex because they drank. But they found out after they drank that they were immoral. And throughout the Bible, God links alcohol with sexual immorality. Hold your finger here and turn to the book of Proverbs chapter 23 for a moment. By the way, as you're turning there, I hope you saw the study that was just released by CBS just a few days ago. I think it came on Thursday or Friday of this past week. And the title of the study, again, a very comprehensive study, it's entitled, There Is No Safe Level of Alcohol. That's what they're saying. I could have told you that without doing the study. There is no safe level of alcohol. That myth, a glass of wine a day will keep, you know, the heart in good shape is a lie according to this study. But I know it's a lie according to God's word because God teaches us two things. One, don't get drunk. Two, don't use strong drink. And strong drink is not, again, the distilled liquors that come a thousand years after the Bible is written, but it's high alcohol content wine. When I was in a Jewish home for a Sabbath dinner, I didn't partake, but I respected them that they used what was called sweet wine. It was 2% wine. 2%. Not the 8 10 18% you typically buy in the grocery store. Why? Because those Orthodox Jews did not want to be guilty of using strong drink. And that's how they have understood it for over 3,000 years, that high alcohol content wine, we're not talking about the alcohol content in whiskey and rum, but just wine. High alcohol content wine is forbidden by God with the exception of giving to a dying, despairing man. Now listen to what he says. He's speaking to his son. Here in Proverbs 23, and I'm sure he'd say the same thing to his daughter to keep her on the straight and narrow. Chapter 23, verse 19. Listen, my son, and be wise and direct your heart in the way. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. Listen to your father who begot you, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Again, in verse 26, he pleads with him, Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. Here is a father warning his son, and here is a pastor this morning warning his people. And I hope you have ears to hear because I can promise you that this is not a warning that the alcohol industry will give to you like this father warned his son on that day. Now, he just told us in verses 20 and 23 that the sin of drunkenness can lead to poverty. In our own family, my mother's brother had the largest construction company in the city of Boston, and he drank it to nothing, and he died a pauper a drunk in a rented room about 40 miles away. That's what it does sometimes. And uh, people will literally come to poverty through it. But it also leads to sexual immorality. And so sandwiched here between his exhortation in verses 20 to 26 to stay away from alcohol and his warning against alcohol in 29 to 35, notice what he says beginning in verse 26. Give me your heart, my son." And let your eyes delight in my ways. What a wonderful daddy who can say, live like me. Do like I do. Look, some of you dads, you got beer in the refrigerator. And you have that beer. And I'm telling you, you are being a terrible, terrible model to that son, to that daughter. You say, you're making me mad, Pastor. I'm just telling you the truth. And people don't always want to hear it. But listen, you think you can drink in moderation, and it's just fine. No, you're drinking strong drinking. God says, don't do it. You know why people become alcoholics? Because wine is addictive. Beer is addictive. And that one can won't do what it used to do. And then it becomes two or three. And before you know it, your son thinks, well, dad can handle a beer. Why can't I? For a harlot is a deep pity, he goes on to say. And an adulterous woman is a narrow well, as he warns his son. Surely she lurks as a robber and increases the faithless among men. And then he immediately picks up his refrain against alcohol again. Here's a father thinking and writing under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit. And he brings these two sins together. He's saying, son, if you drink alcohol, it will cause you to go into the sin of sexual immorality
1: Alcohol has the effect of loosening people up, of ignoring the many dangers the Bible warns us against. And so oftentimes, drunkenness goes hand in hand with sexual immorality. And in situations where the participants are married to different individuals, the compromise can and oftentimes does lead to a breakup of the family. We're using the halfway point of our study in the Revelation to recap what we've learned so far. And to have our eyes open to some of the great dangers that are part and parcel of our culture and which the Bible tells us will occur before the rapture of the church and the subsequent tribulation period. To listen to this message in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877 787 7478, and requesting program R E 36. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll conclude our look at What Time Is It? Join us then as we search the Scriptures.